towards the cross. And so we're considering through ten week, a 10-week teaching series, uh, the gospel according to Mark. Many of our community groups are following along uh, in this as well, discussing deeper uh, some of the themes that are being brought out on Sunday mornings. I hope that's been good for you all that are involved in a community group, uh, being able to dig a little deeper together and, and consider uh, this text. You know, um, we, we read in James, we're supposed to be not just hearers, but doers. And so that's one of the goals of community group, helping us to actually put into practice what we are hearing on a Sunday morning. So I, I hope that's been beneficial for you. Um, in a minute here, we're going to uh, dive into our text for the morning, which is going to be Mark 10, 17 through 31. And what we're considering today is the good life and the good king. All right? So I'm, I'm going to uh, pray first, then invite you all to stand. We'll read this text and dive into our teaching this morning. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you uh, that you're a God who has revealed himself. You've made yourself known to us um, through your word. Uh, we also see evidence of who you are in creation. In many different ways, you are speaking to us about who you are and your intentions towards us in life. So thank you. Uh, God, we, we know that um, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and you've given it to us to guide us. You've also given us your word to nourish us. Uh, we read that, uh, that humans, that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So God, I pray this morning uh, you would give us ears to hear your word, uh, hearts that are open to your word. And God, I pray that uh, your word would accomplish its purpose this morning in our lives, uh, drawing us closer to you and making us more like Jesus. So we ask you to accomplish this purpose this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, will you stand with me? And I'm going to read uh, Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. After I read, I will say the word of the Lord, and you'll, you can all respond back. Thanks be to God. All right? And uh, this will not be on the screen this morning, so feel free just to listen along or even follow along in your own Bible. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. 
The word of the Lord. Would you have a seat? Well, my family loves to uh, sometimes talk in movie quotes. Maybe uh, your family does a similar thing. In one of the movies we find ourselves often uh, referring to is uh, 2006 comedy Nacho Libre, starring Jack Black, uh, who played a monk who worked as a cook in an orphanage, and he desperately wanted to become a famous wrestler. And in one scene, he says to the children in the orphanage, my life is good, really good. And he says this tongue-in-cheek because he doesn't have much. He doesn't have a lot of money or clothes or a romantic relationship. And really, he felt that in order to have a good life, he needed more. And I find that mindset to be quite prevalent, especially in our American culture. The idea that the good life is linked in with having more, more income, more possessions, more experiences. Uh, the rich young fella who came to Jesus in Mark 10 um, seemed to be a guy that had it all. He seemed to be a guy whose life was really good. I mean, what we see about this guy here as we go through the text is that this was a man who was in his physical prime. Uh, we see a couple clues here. It says that he's on his journey, but then sees Jesus and runs up to him. So he's physically fit enough to run to Jesus. The Matthew account of the same story tells us that this man was a young man. The creaks and groans of aging hadn't set in yet. And uh, see, this guy's in his physical prime. It also makes great pains to tell us this was a man with great possessions. Uh, he was a rich fella. Um, I think in our culture, we're really fascinated with people who strike it rich, especially at a young age. Uh, if you go on uh, Forbes, they keep track of the youngest billionaires out there. I actually lo I looked this week, um, recorded stories of guys like uh, Ben Francis, uh, who was a college student delivering pizzas, when at age 19, he started an activewear company called Gymshark. Uh, he made the first pieces of clothing uh, in his parents' garage. And the brand exploded, doing over 500 million in 2021 alone. Then he sold 21% of the business for another 300 million. And this is who uh, this young man is coming up to Jesus. He's like this. He's a young guy who's killing it. So this guy is young, he's wealthy, but interestingly enough, it hasn't made him a jerk. <laughs> and quite often that can happen. People that achieve great success at a young age can become tough to be around. It doesn't seem that that's this guy. This guy is still a really good guy. Uh, we see that he's a devout person. I mean, he comes to Jesus and kneels before him. He wants to learn from him. He recognizes Jesus as a rabbi, as a good teacher, and he wants to learn. And we also see that he's a, a moral fella. Um, he sought to live according to God's law from a young age. He really wanted to do all that God has said. So here's a guy that if we were to meet today, I think all of us would conclude, here's a good guy with a good life. Yet despite all this young, rich fella had going for him, we find that he still was searching for something elusive. He comes to Jesus and he wants something that he does not yet have. We find that he really is still lacking the real good life. 
Now, maybe you can resonate with that. Maybe you can resonate with, you know, setting your intention in life and, and accomplishing some of what you set out to do. Maybe it's in business. Um, maybe it's uh, with family. But you, you set your intention to have a good life and to be a good person, and you've achieved. That was what you set out to do. And you find that you still have this sense of not quite yet. There must be more. Well, if that's what you resonate with this morning, I encourage you to listen in to Jesus' conversation with this rich young man. In Mark 10, 17, the rich young man begins by asking Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before we dive into the rest of the teaching about eternal life and wealth, I want to first consider what is good and who is good. Because um, Jesus actually starts there. Uh, and I don't think it just was a, a warm-up for Jesus. Like he's kind of easing into the conversation. Uh, I think this is significant. And for quite some time, I just skipped right past Jesus' first question, kind of got onto the more confusing things that Jesus said. But this is important and gives us clarity for the rest of the conversation. This rich young man addressed Jesus as good teacher. Then Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You see, this man was looking and searching for the good life. And he believes himself to be a good person. But Jesus wants him to consider, how does he know what good actually is. See, I think that's the tendency for all of us, is to pursue a good life unthinkingly. To not first ask, the defini- ask, how do we define good? How do we know what good is? And if we don't stop and define it, and think about what our basis for that definition is, then I find we are simply pursuing the good life almost in a similar way that my wife and I go to a restaurant and order a salad. You see, what defines a good salad for me is very different for what defines a good salad for her. For me, it's like, the more on the salad, the better. Mushrooms, bacon bits, egg, lots of blue cheese, that's good. She looks at that and says, that's bad. Very different perspectives on the same thing. And that's how human beings are so often pursuing the good life. Just based on personal preference and desire, without stopping to think, who defines what is actually good? And Jesus says, only God is good. See, God is the maker of all. Everything seen, everything unseen. He knows how the universe works. He knows how life works. He knows how humanity works. Therefore, he defines what is good. So any attempt for us to pursue the good life without first getting the definition of the good life from God is bound to fail. So Jesus begins by drawing this man's attention to who actually is good It's God and God alone. Now, this man does not really grasp the fact that he is talking to God and God alone in that moment. Jesus himself, fully God, fully man, drawing this man towards eternal life. So after Jesus begins with talking about what is good, uh, then he transitions in Mark 10, 19 to this statement. He says to him, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now remember, Jesus is answering the man's question, how do I inherit eternal life? And I'll be honest with you, this is where I start getting a little bit confused. 
This is where I start scratching my head, saying, what's Jesus up to? I've been a Christian for quite some time. I know what the Bible teaches about how we receive eternal life. Uh, maybe you also know the teaching. that The Bible says that, that no one can be righteous in God's sight through keeping the law. That we are made right with God by God's grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. We sang this morning about the, the young son who came back home, that he had disobeyed his father's law, but was received back with open arms. And we, we know the gospel tells us that, that God is graciously receiving us, not because we've lived perfectly according to the law, but by his grace. So we say, what is going on? Why is Jesus answering this man's question about receiving eternal life by pointing him to the law? Now, many people have uh, uh, thought that maybe Jesus is just playing along with what he assumes this guy's thinking is. He's assuming this guy's thinking, I'm basically a good person, and I'll get into heaven someday because I've been such a good person. So Jesus is kind of playing along with this guy's wrong thinking to expose it and lead him to the truth. And I do think Jesus is looking to expose this man's wrong thinking, but I don't think it's in that way. You see, I think Jesus wants the, the, him and us to first think about the question what before we think about the question how. Before we think about how do we receive eternal life, he wants us to think about what is eternal life. So I want us to consider that now and how that connects to the commandments. What is eternal life? See, we typically think about that phrase, eternal life, in terms of quantity, length of time, time forever after we die. But Jesus not only talked about eternal life in terms of quantity, but quality. He quite often talked about a certain kind of life that is available now and lasts forever. Now, we've already talked a lot about this in the sermon series, that, that Jesus' main message was the kingdom of God. He came and proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, that, that God as king, is king of the universe and rules over all that he has made. And what has gone wrong in life is that humanity has rejected God's right to rule in our lives. In a sense, we've said, we'll take it from here. You know, thanks for everything else, but we'll decide for ourselves what is right and good. And not walking in God's ways has produced all of the problems that we see in the world. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, the King of Kings, has come into this world and has made a way for God's kingdom to once again rule humanity. And life will not be right until God's kingdom rules over all. Now, what we see here in Mark is that Jesus is this king who is offering to people his life and through his life welcoming them into his kingdom. So the kingdom of God and eternal life are actually two ways that the biblical authors are talking about the same thing. Both the kingdom of God and eternal life are talking about God's life, his rulership over all, and that we now are being drawn into it through Jesus Christ. Now, let me take this a step deeper here, because this has just been a lot of me posturing. So I want to take you to the scriptures, all right? Uh, Jesus himself defines eternal life in this way. In John 17, 3, Jesus gets very clear. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus defines eternal life not primarily in terms of length of time, though it involves that, 
but primarily relationally. It's about knowing a person. Eternal life is relationship with Jesus Christ. Eternal life is life with Him. Eternal life, therefore, begins now and lasts forever. Now, the Scriptures tell us that the now portion of eternal life is like the engagement period, that right now we have the opportunity to become connected to Jesus Christ by faith, to know Him, but there is a future uh, aspect of that relationship that is far greater than our experience now. Just as an engaged person is, has a wonderful relationship with their, their fiancé, but there is a future level of relationship, a consummation that comes later that is greater. In a similar way, our relationship with Jesus now is this engagement period. That eternal life now is knowing Him, but it will be fulfilled later. So first, eternal life is knowing Jesus. But secondly, eternal life is also defined as walking in Jesus' ways. It's knowing him and walking with him. So if we only know him, but then don't live according to his instructions, it actually makes life pretty difficult, knowing Jesus, but then not wanting to walk with him. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12, uh, gets at this aspect of the definition. We read, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue, and he's talking about a list of kind of bad behaviors. Then he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Now listen to this. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So he's saying, take hold of this life that you were saved for. And he's defining that life. It looks like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. He's saying, this is the way that God has saved you to live. This is the good life. Take hold of it. See, eternal life is knowing Jesus and walking in his ways. Now, if you are engaged, you do well to start living a certain way of life. If you are engaged and are still dating all kinds of other people, you're probably not going to make it to your wedding day. Right? There's a certain kind of life you live once you are engaged. In a similar way, Jesus is calling us into a certain kind of life through faith in himself. We know him, we walk with him. So here's the conclusion. Jesus isn't only concerned about this rich young man getting into heaven after he dies. He wants to get heaven into the man while he lives. That, there's a difference there. Is it only about after we die, or is it about knowing Jesus and walking with him now and forever. And this is why he's referencing the commandments, because those commandments actually describe the way God wants us to live. Uh, I mean, just imagine with me, if you lived the commandments, and I'm not, I'm not gonna say perfectly, but, but if they characterized your life, if there was little to no lying at all coming out of your life, if there was no deception, um, if there was no coveting, you weren't always jealous of what others had, you know, if there was no sexual impropriety, you, if you read through the list of the commandments, and if you think, if I really lived this way, what kind of life would it produce? Well, I guarantee you, it would produce a level of freedom in your own life. Imagine living with not much guilt at all. Imagine living with confidence that you're living rightly. It produces a, a goodness to life. Now, imagine if your whole family was characterized by God's instructions. Think about the goodness that would take place in your home. Think about the lack of friction 
uh, the intimacy, the love that would be produced by people walking according to God's instructions. Now imagine if our whole church was characterized by those kind of keeping of God's law. I mean, you can imagine what a beautiful community that would be. You see, 1 John says that God's commandments are not burdensome. I love that phrase. God's commandments are not burdensome. They're actually the path of life. The problem is we, can't, we don't live them very well. The problem is we fail, we fall short to live God's commandments. Now, this fellow didn't quite grasp that. After Jesus described to him a life of following God's instructions, the rich young man said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. All these I've kept from my youth. Now, um, some, guy, some, some people read this response and think, what an arrogant punk. Now, he could be. It could, this could be an arrogant statement. I tend to think it's not. And that's because of how Jesus responds back to him. Jesus typically respond, responded to arrogance with direct confrontation, like with, with the Pharisees. He usually was very blunt in, in pushing back. God, God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. I don't think this man is so much arrogant as he is naive. And I think that characterizes much of us. Naive about our real condition. So Jesus wants to help this rich, young, naive man uh, come to see reality. And it was easy to be naive, because I think this guy was a really good guy. Probably compared to a lot of other people there in the room, um, he may have been a much, much better at keeping the commandments. So in comparison to others, he seemed pretty good. But Mark 10, 21, we kind of get to the heart of this account. And it says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. See, Jesus wants this man, and he wants us to come to him for eternal life. Um, there's a lot in this statement that Jesus said that is troubling, confusing. Uh, it can cause us to miss the clear aspect of what he said. When he said, um, come, follow me, at the very end of that statement, come, follow me, this is how we have eternal life. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone because he is himself eternal life. So he wants this man to come to him, to trust in him, and to follow him. That's clear. Now, there's much here that we'll work through in a minute, but I want us just to start with what is clear. Jesus is inviting this man to come to him. Um, we read again and again all kinds of phrases in the Gospels about Jesus being uh, life itself. John 1 talked about, in him was life, and his life was the light of men. Uh, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life, or I am the way, the truth, and the life. Like Jesus himself is the source of all life, and he's the one that can give us new life. So he's inviting this man to come to him, and not just come to him, but then to follow him, to learn from him, to be his apprentice, to learn from him how to walk in God's ways. Now on to the rest of the other stuff. Why all the other stuff? Well, because there's a lot of stuff that can keep us from coming to Jesus and walking in his ways. And Jesus is saying anything that gets in the way of you coming to me and becoming my apprentice and learning from me in life, you need to get rid of that. And one of the things that Jesus talked the most about as being an obstacle to coming to Jesus was money. 
Jesus talked about it more than any other sin kind of issue. He talked about it all the time, the way that wealth can keep us from eternal life. In Mark 10, 23, Jesus said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, just think about how countercultural that statement is. I mean, in our society, it's just a given that you want to have wealth. I mean, that's just the general assumption. More money is a better life. Like, why wouldn't you want to have wealth? And Jesus gives us a caution. He's saying, ah, not that wealth is inherently evil, but it could make it more difficult for you to enter the kingdom of God. That is a very countercultural statement that we've got to really consider. A famous uh, preacher, Charles Spurgeon, kind of keying off this idea, he said, continued worldly prosperity is a fiery trial. I don't think that way. Continued worldly prosperity is a fiery trial. You know, in my flesh, I'd say, sign me up for that trial. Um, But Jesus doesn't see it the same way. And I think we need this warning. And it's easier now, I'm sure it's easy to think about somebody else in your life that you would characterize as wealthy. There's always somebody with a bigger house, a larger bank account, takes more vacations. But just by the sheer fact that we live where we do, when we do, as Americans in the Right now, um, we are some of the wealthiest people to have ever existed in history. All of us are the rich young man in this story. All of us are. All of us find it difficult to really receive Jesus' teaching on wealth. So we need to lean into this as difficult as it is. So I want us to consider this. How can wealth keep us from eternal life? How can wealth keep us from eternal life? Uh, First, wealth can distract us from our true need. Wealth can distract us from our true need. Now, it could be through pleasant distractions. I mean, when you have more money, you can just do more things, buy more things. Um, I actually was thinking about this week, and I thought, you know, probably the norm in our culture is to purchase distractions, be it uh, through shopping, hobbies, vacations, dinners out. These are all forms of distraction. Not wrong, not bad, but they're distractions. So we we spend our life uh, being distracted and then talking about our distractions. That's just the flow of life. We we get distracted and then talk to others about how we were distracted in in between the distractions. Now, those can be pleasant things, but when we are distracted by all of these Uh, vacations, dinners out. It's so easy to not bring our soul's true need to Jesus. Oh, I'm having a tough week. Uh, Let's go out to dinner. I did that Friday. You know, it's easy to do that. Uh, To to satisfy a soul hunger through a buying momentary contentment and happiness. And money works great at it for a moment. For a moment, we can buy happiness and contentment. For a moment. But there's a law of diminishing returns. (laughs) You need to do more and more to be able to have a sense of contentment and peace. Um, I wasn't going to mention this, but I, 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 I was kind of intrigued this week. I came across a book, um, I think it was written back in 2006, called Affluenza. Anybody heard of that? Affluenza? Yeah, an interesting book written by I think, James Oliver, a sociologist. And, and the idea being that uh, modern American society, that we are infected with a virus called affluenza. And, and it's the it's the the desire for more. I need to have more possessions. I need to look better and present myself in a certain way. And in societies that have this kind of value system, there's actually uh, a a direct relationship to emotional distress. 
that if those are our values, it makes us less emotionally healthy, not more happy. So the more we lean into affluenza, the less happy we actually are, the less content we actually are. And I think it infects all of us in our culture. Uh, wealth can easily distract us through pleasant distractions or through unpleasant distractions. Um, as the uh, poet, the notorious B.I.G. said, more money, more problems, right? And there's a truth to it. I mean, I remember back when I was uh, first married, Wendy and I had a, a pretty humble apartment, and we couldn't wait to get our first house. And then we saved, and we were able to purchase our first house, which my lovely sister called a hole. And it was, all right? But then we spent all kinds of money trying to fix up our hole, and we did fix it up some. But I just think of all the time we started putting into our house. Now, when I had my apartment, I didn't have to cut the grass. I didn't have to fix anything that broke in the house. Now I'm a homeowner. Guess what I have to spend all my time and money doing? Fixing up my hole. And then I was able to get a better house, no longer a hole, but a, but a house. Guess what? I now had to spend more money on that next house. You see, these kind of distractions are unpleasant because they cause more and more work for us, more and more to worry about. The more cars you have, the more pro things break on your cars, the more th there is to fix. We do it to ourselves. So wealth can distract us through pleasant or unpleasant distractions. But more than that, wealth can actually deceive us into thinking we are secure. Wealth can distract us, but wealth can also deceive us. I mean, one of the ways that we most uh, it's most common for us to feel safe and secure is by our income. If we have a job, there's a level of security that comes with having a job. Or if we have a, a good-sized savings account, we can feel secure. Or a retirement portfolio. Or, or a house that's really secure. These are common ways that we try to make ourselves feel safe in life. Jesus uh, talked about this, actually in Luke chapter 12, he uh, told, it was called the parable of the rich fool. And this was a guy who did very well for himself. And then he basically said, you know what? I've, I've got enough now to be secure in life. So now I'll just kick back, relax, and take it easy because I am secure. And I don't know if you remember the story, but Jesus in the story, God said to, to this man, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That no job, no savings account, no retirement portfolio can keep anyone from death. That comes to everyone, rich and poor alike. And so wealth cannot actually make us secure. And we need to realize that if we're going to have wisdom in life. So wealth can distract us, wealth can deceive us. But then thirdly, wealth can destroy us. And this is hard. Uh, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 through 10, uh, Paul writes, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now notice here in this passage, he's not saying money itself is bad. He talked about a desire to be rich, a craving for more, and the love of money. And he's saying that desire is actually poison to the soul. Now the great irony is we consider that a virtue in our culture. And the scriptures call it a vice. 
It is poison to the soul. Christy mentioned earlier um, during the announcement time that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the problem with the love of money is that it takes our heart's natural wiring. Our hearts are made for God. Our hearts are made to derive their, their love from God, their sense of meaning and purpose from God. And what it does is it shifts our heart's intention toward another source in life. So our hearts are going to derive love, meaning, purpose from one source or another. The problem with money is it can't actually solve anything. All it does is distract and deceive. And so we want to have hearts that are attached to the source of life itself. And if our hearts are attached to money, it will destroy our heart's capacity to attach to Jesus Christ. And so we are warned in the scriptures about the dangers of wealth. And again, we just need to hear this from time to time in our culture. There's no way to to watch TV for a while and not be affected by this value system. No way to go through your work life and not be affected by this value system. There's no way to do it in our culture. So we come again and again to God's word and let it realign our hearts to what is true. So if this is what is true, if we need to come to Jesus and Jesus alone for eternal life, and we need to beware of the dangers of wealth to keep us from coming to Jesus, what are we to do? What are we to do? Let's just walk through what Jesus says here. If we're going to come to him, if we're going to follow him and living the eternal kind of life, what do we need to do with our money? Let me read again Mark 10, 21, uh, Jesus' words to to the rich young man. It says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. We're going to look at three things here. First, Jesus is calling this young man, and he's calling us, to surrender ownership of our wealth. To surrender ownership. He said, sell all that you have. Now, it's easy to get hung up on the fact that this guy was literally told to sell all his possessions. And so if you're like me, my first thought is, is that me too? What Jesus is talking about here is our attitude toward our money, our relationship with our money. And this man, and I think us naturally, we view ourselves as owners. Um, these are, it's my bank account, my house, my retirement portfolio. And Jesus is saying, that's what's got to change. It's not. That God is the source of all things. God is the giver of all things. All we have in life is from him. That's reality. And we take none of it with us when we die. So all that we have now are things on loan to us from God. And so he's calling this man to change his attitude toward money from being an owner to being a steward. You see, a steward is in charge of somebody else's money. A steward then operates according to their agenda for the money. How, how would the, own, the true owner want these resources used? And I've got to tell you, it's actually a really freeing way to live. You see, being a, a house owner, I, I realized how much more anxiety came from being an owner than being a steward. There is a real freedom to living the steward life. And you realize, you know what? God will give me what I need, whether I have a lot or I have a little. He'll provide. And there's, a, there's a level of peace and contentment that comes only through stewardship, not through ownership. Some of the anxiety that we feel in life is from trying to take on a role we were never meant to take on. We're not meant to be the owners of our things in life, but the stewards. So Jesus calls us to 
to change our relationship with our money. And there's a real benefit to that change. The second thing that Jesus calls us to do is to invest our wealth in God's kingdom. Jesus didn't just say, sell all that you have, you know, throw it in the river. He said, sell all that you have and give to the poor. That God does have some things that he wants us to do with his resources. God is very concerned about the plight of the poor, the widow, the orphan. We see it again and again in scripture. God, God wants us to use his resources uh, for his purposes. Uh, Jesus is very concerned that the gospel would be proclaimed broadly. And so God wants us to use resources that fund the things that God wants to have happen on planet Earth. So Jesus wants this man to be a steward and then use those resources to give. Um, You know, it's important having this mindset of stewardship and then giving God's money to the right sources. Uh, This past year, I I bought a used car from a man uh, in Philadelphia. It's kind of hard to do a, a car sale long distance. And so after I purchased the car, he was going to send me the, um, the title. And it never came. I kept waiting, kept waiting for this title to come. So finally I called the guy up. He had to go do a whole uh, title search, get a new one, and send it up to me. Because that first title never came. And all I could think about was, you know, some uh, mailman took my title. You know, I kind of had uh, the idea of, of Newman in Seinfeld. You know, <laughs> some were holding on to my title. And... That's exactly the picture of what God is calling us not to do. We're the middleman with God's resources. That we're not to hold on to the things that God has entrusted to us. We're to deliver them to the places that God intends. And so God intends his resources to be delivered to his purposes. And so my question for you this morning is, have you developed a, a heart-shaping plan for sacrificial generosity? It's one of the reasons every Sunday we, we talk about the opportunity to give here. It's not just fundraising. Um, Any organization can do that. This is a heart-shaping spiritual practice. Probably nothing will shape your heart more than what you do with your money. And and what I find that it's so important to do, it's to give intentionally, not out of just the overflow of what we have, not if we had a really good week or a good month, but giving to God in a planned way from what he has given to us. Um, Is that your practice? Do you have an intentional plan for giving in a heart-shaping, sacrificial kind of way. Jesus calls us to surrender ownership of our wealth, to invest our wealth in God's kingdom. And then third, to see Jesus as our treasure. You know, when the rich young man heard the invitation of Jesus to sell all that he had and to give it to the poor, you know what he did? He walked away sad. He says he walked away disheartened very sorrowful, because he had great possessions. It was a big ask. Now, let's be honest. Surrendering surrendering ownership of our wealth and investing in God's kingdom doesn't come natural for anyone. It doesn't for me. I mean, who does this? What Jesus asked the guy to do. Who actually gives away all that they have? Who sells all their possessions and gives them to the poor? Who does this? Well, there's one who has. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says that for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
When Jesus, the king of the universe, was wealthy beyond imagination, from eternity past, he dwelt in splendor, in comfort, in security. What the scriptures tell us is that he laid it all aside. He gave it all up. When he became human, he laid aside his comfort, his splendor, his privilege. And he was born, and not just born as a regular human being, you know, in a middle-income kind of house, but he was born to a very, very poor family. I mean, the, the narrative we tell every Christmas is about this young, probably teenage mother who gives birth you know, in the equivalent of a barn because they couldn't find a place for a proper birth. He's born in that kind of setting. And then, and then as he grows up, he first has to live as a refugee. They have to flee Israel to Egypt. When you think about the plight of this poor family and all that Jesus endured living with a very poor uh, mother and father. And that we know as he grew up, that Jesus said he had no place to lay his head. He wasn't a homeowner. He was a poor man. And he walked this journey of poverty all the way to the cross where everything was stripped. Everything given. This wretched young man in Jesus' story did not know at this point all that Jesus would give away for him. He didn't yet know all that Jesus would do, the depths that he would go to, so that this man could come to him and follow him. But there's reason to believe that one day, this rich young man did come to know this. Uh, we don't know this for certain, but church tradition and modern scholars believe that this rich young man in Jesus' story was none other than Mark, uh, the author of this gospel account. There's a few clues um, we know that Mark came from a wealthy family. We know this. Uh, we know that he was young when he began to follow Jesus. And even in the text, there's a personal clue. In verse 21, we read earlier, as Jesus is saying these very hard words to him, the author inserts in there, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I mean, it just rings of this firsthand account of a person that looked in Jesus' eyes and saw what was the motive behind these words. You see, when Jesus became his treasure, he was able to let go of ownership of his wealth and take hold of the eternal life that's found only in Jesus Christ. And it's the same for us. Only when we see Jesus as the treasure, the pearl of great price, only then can we truly let go of the stranglehold we have on our wealth. So a few questions for you in closing. How are you currently living in relationship to your money? Would you characterize yourself as an anxious owner or a contented steward? Owner or steward? And I invite you this morning, even this morning in prayer, surrender your resources to Jesus. He wants nothing but good for you. No good thing does he withhold. He doesn't. Surrender your resources to Jesus. Second, how are you investing what God has given you into his kingdom? Uh, this is a wonderful thing that happens when you get to invest in a ship that's going up. When you invest in God's kingdom, you're part of a sure investment. I mean, God's kingdom will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And it is a wonderful thing to invest in a success story. And lastly, is Jesus your treasure? Is he? Because I know this, you are his treasure. He's calling you into relationship with him, into eternal life. Do you hear his invitation this morning? If so, 
come. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful uh, that you have given yourself fully to us. Uh, Jesus, we're, we're in awe that you are willing to lay aside everything uh, to become a human being, to become a man, uh, to become someone who lived a, an impoverished life and walked all the way to a cross, dying our death. Thank you for taking our sin upon you. And Lord, thank you in exchange for giving us your righteousness. Lord, we know that your word says that all who place their faith in Jesus become co-heirs with Christ. I mean, what a privilege, Lord, that we now get to be part of what is rightfully yours forever. So Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see um, your true worth, give us ears to hear your call, and give us hands that are free uh, from the grasp of worldly possessions. May they not keep us from you, the great treasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.